again, I want to welcome you to our gathering today. Uh, if I don't know you, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, we uh, are going to be uh, stopping or taking a break from our time in Hebrews for the next three weeks. So if you have your Bibles, what I want you to do uh, as we settle in, just go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, the, the words will, the verses will be up on the screen. Uh, but today we're going to begin, uh, uh, man, three weeks uh, away from our time in Hebrews to really focus in uh, on uh, three things. Uh, this is the time of year. Today is Palm Sunday. And so uh, sometimes we'll do uh, Palm Sunday and specific Easter sermons. Sometimes we'll just uh, we'll teach the text based on uh, kind of what's going on in the church calendar. But this uh, this year, what we're going to do is we're going to take our time today and we're going to look at this reality that blessed is the king. Right. Uh, and we're going to look at Palm Sunday and the next week we're going to celebrate uh, the reality of the resurrection together. And so I want to go ahead. We're going to invite you at the end of our time today. But I want to invite you uh, to join us next Friday uh, for our Good Friday uh, gathering celebration that we're going to have from 530 to 730. But also want to invite you to uh, our time on Easter Sunday uh, where we will celebrate um, risen and reigning Savior uh, that we have in Jesus. Also, this is a great opportunity to invite uh, your friends, neighbors, maybe someone you know that doesn't have a local church, man, uh, get that invitation out there. Uh, we'll have more information on what that looks like at the end of our time today. But we're going to look at uh, the triumphal entry today. We're going to look at the resurrection next week. And then we're going to take one week because we kind of had like a filler week. We were trying to figure out what to do with. And so we are going to preach an entire book of the Bible in one week. Okay. So one Sunday, we're going to exposit the whole book of Philemon. Uh, if you've never read Philemon, go check it out and you'll know why it's only going to take us one week. Uh, but, uh, it could take longer than that, but we are going to look at what does it look like in light of how we've been reconciled to God to seek reconciliation with one another. If we, uh, want to cultivate biblical community, we know that that is part of it. Uh, but today as we dive into Luke 19, uh, what I want to do quickly uh, because again, this is kind of pump the brakes on Hebrews, uh, move into Luke. Where are we? What's going on? I want to give a bit of backstory leading up to where we're going to be walking through today. Because I think as, as we hear the backstory and understand kind of even the, the previous chapter and what's gone on and even as the lead up to Luke 19, what we see uh, really tells us a lot about what we're going to walk into today. So what we find in Luke up until chapter 9 is Jesus doing what we see him do in all the Gospels. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God through both word and deed. Jesus says, hey, the kingdom is here and now. And he expresses the reality of the kingdom that he is the king that has come to make all things new and is making all things new by reversing the things that sin broke, right? So he, you see him throughout the gospels, uh, healing. You see him providing. You see him even raising Lazarus from the dead. And so we see these pictures of the kingdom. Jesus calls his disciples, right? In the book of Luke or in this gospel, you see Jesus over and over again speak in parables and tell stories uh, using metaphors or things that, that surrounded the people in their context of this time. Jesus casts out demons. He calms storms. He feeds thousands. And again, what Jesus is showing us is he has come to make all things right. 
He is the promised Messiah that has been spoken of since the fall in Genesis 3, but was there in the beginning, John chapter 1. We also see that the kingdom of God is real and it is an eternal reality in the moment. And yet the way Jesus is doing it is by, man, He's come to set the captive free. He's come to take we who are in bondage, actually we who Scripture would say are dead in our trespasses and sin, and then He has come to bring life. You see, the question that is still to be answered is, what is that freedom going to look like? As you read through the gospel stories, what you see is even the disciples are questioning and Jesus is giving these answers like, hey, this is why I've come. And they're like, no, 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 you didn't come to die. You came to reign. So let us sit on your right hand and on your left. Hey, let us call down some fire on those people so they'll quit bad mouthing. Hey, let's do these things. Hey, when are you going to overtake the Roman rule, right? What is this freedom to look like? Is it freedom from Roman tyranny or is it another type of freedom? Is it maybe an immediate freedom from the things that just ail you, right? Or is it a, 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 a freedom that can bring, uh, meet both your immediate and eternal needs? You see, the answer to that, for those we find in the story today, I believe tells a lot about what they believed about who Jesus was, even if they fully didn't understand it, and what he came to do. Because you see, they're going to give an answer. But again, I would ask, what's the focus even in their answer? Are they just wanting relief from Rome? Or are they wanting Jesus to actually come and bring the kingdom? I also believe that this same question regarding the freedom that we long for when answered by each one of us tells us a lot of uh, of the same in terms of how we view Jesus. How we view what he did and what we believe it to mean for our lives today. And so in your life, what freedom are you looking for? And how does your answer reveal who you believe Jesus to be? I shared it last week. Do you, as you look at Jesus, do you see him more as a genie or a king? Do you find yourself just, oh, I just got to rub the lamp. I hope I have enough wishes left. Or do you see him as king eternal who is sovereign over all? The one whom we, because he's given our life for us, we submit our lives to him. And say, Jesus, whatever it is, my hands are open. And so again, today in your life, do you view him as king? And if, what, if so, what kind of king do you see him as? My argument is the text today really is going to reveal three things about Jesus as our triumphant king. But also it's going to reveal some things about our response to him as our triumphant king. And so let's begin by reading Luke 19, 28 through 35. It says this, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying... Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on it, they set Jesus on it. Okay, so quickly, let me set the stage for what's taking place in this moment before diving into the first part point regarding Jesus as our triumphant king. And I want to begin this way just just to let you all know something about myself. Uh, again, cultivating biblical community. Uh, we want to uh, know about one another. Right. And so one of the things about me is I love donkeys. OK, so I love this text today. All right. Uh, and the reason I love donkeys uh, is simply this, because when I see a donkey, I don't have time to get into the whole story as why. Um, but if you want to ask me later, I'll tell you the story, how I came to this uh, just belief and understanding. Is when I see a donkey, it, it is a piece of God's creation that I look at it and I'm like, man, God loves me. Now, you can interpret that however you would like, but I'm just saying that's like when I see a donkey, like you, you can be driving with me. Like it's happened to Haley and Jeremy. Like we were playing golf one day. I was like, hey, look, there's a donkey. God loves me. And he goes, what in the world? When I see it, I'm reminded, man, this is God. I'm reminded of God's love for me through the Son. And I think even in the text today, as we see the humility of Jesus coming in on the humble means of a donkey, we see a picture of a different kind of king. And so this text in Luke comes on the heels of a parable regarding Jesus as the true king. Actually, what Jesus does in the previous parable is he works through. There's a uh, there was a story uh, of an, uh, a Roman emperor, ruler. He was a governor and he wanted to be king and he wanted to have this name and title. And yet he doesn't receive it. And what Jesus is doing in the, the, the previous parable is he's saying, hey, no, I'm actually the true king. I have the label. And what he says in this parable is he, he explains and expounds on this reality that he is the king. That has both given and called every follower or every person in his kingdom to invest the deposit of the gospel that we receive into not only our own lives, but by way of proclaiming the good news as we invest it in the lives of others. We are to do something with this good news we have received. You see, we are to be a gospel people, which means, guess what? You and I are to share the gospel with words. At the end of the day, to share the gospel, you have to say words. It is good news to be spoken. Now, do we also reveal the good news in deeds? Yes. But you always have to, those good deeds should always point us to the words of the good news. You see, Jesus' concern in the previous parable is that they would hunger not for an earthly kingdom that brings freedom from Rome, but that they would hunger for an eternal kingdom that brings freedom from death. And so he shares these things and he, it says in the text, he continues ahead going to Jerusalem. I love in Mark, after the transfiguration, uh, what it says is Tim Keller calls it the turn. So Jesus is transfigured on the mountain and then it says he sets his face to Jerusalem. And we're seeing the culmination of his face being set. He is going up to Jerusalem. Now, I think we can read this and not really have a full understanding of what it means in the moment and the anticipation and response that it brings with it. You see, this was a big deal. Because you see anticipation regarding what Jesus would do or what needed to be done with Jesus upon entering Jerusalem had reached a fever pitch. If you really look at all the parties at play, really there's three kind of groups of people that are anticipating what's going to happen or what needs to be done. 
You have the followers of Jesus, the disciples that we're going to see today, that, that for many, if not most, their hope is simply, again, that Jesus would come and overthrow Rome and rule as an earthly king. The time is now. But next, you have the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and those in the same categories as them that are looking and saying, hey, what is he going to do? But also, they're already plotting, how can we kill him? And then lastly, I believe that you have Rome. Guess what? Rome was a ruling power and authority. And so anyone that's coming in with this much anticipation, they're probably going to know about. And so they are looking and watching to see if Jesus is just going to be another self-proclaimed Messiah like Judah Maccabee was or many others that came after Judah Maccabee who would enter in claiming to be the Messiah that would bring freedom but would ultimately fail and die in the process. You see, what we see taking place in the story here is that in drawing near, Jesus reveals himself to be a different kind of king that would bring about salvation and freedom through an entirely different means. What we see is that Jesus is going to come in as a humble king. As I thought about that, I I thought about my childhood and I remember, you know, one of the first games uh, that kids learn is checkers, right? Uh, I remember playing checkers at my grandparents' house and me and my cousin would play. And He was way better at chess, but something about just the, all the jump. Like, man, I could just take I, every time, right, just whoop up on him. And, 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 man, my favorite part of checkers is you get that king, right? And I don't know about y'all, but when it was time to king me, you were going to hear about it. You were going to know about it. And you were going to feel some pain because of it, right? Because I was just, I was going to slam the checker down. And you, everybody in the house would hear, you better king me. You better know who I am. You better be ready because guess what? Now I'm coming backwards and whichever way I won, you're not going to stop me. But Jesus doesn't come in that way. No, he's a different kind of king. You see, what takes place is that just as we go through the story, is that we see the humility of how he comes in. He sends two disciples and he says, hey, go into town and you're going to find a colt, a donkey. And guess what? You need to bring it to me because I need it. And if anyone asks, you just say the Lord has need of it. And guess what? They do just that. And someone asks, they say the Lord has need of it. And they bring the donkey to Jesus. They tell you these things take place just as he said they would. And when the donkey arrives, they throw cloaks on it. And Jesus is placed upon a donkey of all things to begin his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, what takes place in these verses reveals Jesus to be a different king that fulfills the words of Zechariah 9. That states that the coming Messiah would bring salvation by entering in on a humble donkey. This interest, as I stated earlier, was the opposite of what those in the past thought needed to happen. And likely would have been a bit odd even for those expecting Jesus to enter in Jerusalem to begin his military crusade. I don't know about you, I've ridden a lot of animals. But if I'm going to go to war, I'm not going to war on a donkey. Okay, They're stubborn. They're probably going to take off or not even go in. Right now I'm coming in on a war horse. Clarence McCartney wrote about this and I think he develops this picture well. He shares how strange a contrast 
to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time no wall would be broken down for entry. This time no garland and hero standing in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars and followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding on the foal of a donkey. You see, this is not what we would think of when picturing a king, but we find what we find is a humble king prepared and ready to give fully of himself upon the cross to bring a victory no one was looking for or expected. You see, Jesus was the unexpected king that was actually expected all along. This brings us to the response of those watching this take place along the way. And so let's read now about their response in verses 36 through 40. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All right, so what we see here is that not only is Jesus a different kind of king, but because Jesus is a different kind of king, as our king, he creates a different kind of celebration. He creates a totally different kind of response. And we see it in a few ways in this text. Beginning in verse 36, it says, As he rode along, those following him spread their cloaks on the road. Now, for many of you probably heard this story, right? For you, you know, they, they had palm branches and they spread their clothing across the road. One writer described this as a type of red carpet moment for Jesus, but I believe it's way bigger than that. I think the truth of the response is that this is an act of reverent worship on the part of those performing the act. You see, what these people are doing in the moment is proclaiming a willingness to give all of themselves to Jesus. And so the question I ask is, is your life marked by the same willingness to lay down all that you have before Jesus is king? King as he truly is, not king as maybe you've expected him or hoped or conjured up in your mind for him to be, but him truly as king. You see, I think the honest answer for many is that they like the thought of following Jesus or the benefits that seem to be attached to labeling oneself a follower of Jesus, but they're not willing to detach themselves or lay down certain parts of their lives. You see, that's what Jesus calls each and every one of us to in following him. I love the story of Jesus, stories of Jesus calling his disciples. Because all he says is what? Follow me. Follow me. And if you, man, over and over again, what do the disciples do? I love it. It says they, they drop their nets and follow. They drop everything that they have. Their livelihood, their future, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the reality of the safety net of family and community. And they say, no, we're going to follow you. You see, we're all called to the same. 
I shared it last week in Abraham's story, right? Uh, uh, this idea of sacrifice or following Jesus is this call to say, God, whenever you say uh, stop and bind and, and lay whatever it is on the altar and then step back and say, God, have your will. That's what our lives to be marked by. And so our celebration is different in that we lay down or turn from the worship of self and turn to the worship of the king who saves. Next, we see that as Jesus was drawing near in verse 37, which I love that 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 wording of drawing near. What that does is actually paints the picture that the climactic event of redemptive history is drawing ever closer with every step that the donkey takes into Jerusalem. You see, as he draws near, it says the whole multitude of disciples, which had likely continued to grow as word got out that he was entering the city. It says they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Here we see that our celebration is both is different in both reason and content. And so let me begin with the reason. In the text, it says the reason they began to proclaim and, and shout and, and, and sing for joy and praise to God is because of all the mighty works they had seen. You see, this is to be a mark of our lives. It is to be a mark of our lives, follower of Jesus, that we testify to the mighty work that God has done in our life and the mighty works that he has done in the lives of others. This is why I believe that it is, report, it is important for us to recall our story of redemption through proclaiming our story of redemption. Paul Tripp says it best. He says that you need to proclaim the gospel over yourself every day so that you have no better, need, no better news to believe in. Right? Like that is what we're called to. To be reminded. We've even been talking about that in Hebrews, right? Like, hey, remember what God has done and how he's brought you through. May we do that in our own lives. But also, we, I think part of this is that we need to know one another's stories. We need to know one another's story and stories. You know what I mean? They're like, we need to know, like, man, how did you come to know the grace and power of God's resurrection in your life? But also, what is, it's not just this past event, like we talk about it all the time. God has saved you if you're a follower of Jesus. One day he will ultimately save you, but right now he's continuing through sanctification to save you, making you more into the image of Jesus. How is he doing that today? And so we see the reason because of all the mighty works he has done. May people know the mighty works that God has done in our lives. But secondly, we see the content in 38. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, these two statements of worship uh, bring two reminders from the scriptures. Look something up really quickly. The first is found in the blessing that's given, which is the title of this sermon today. Blessed is the king. 
This blessing comes from Psalm 118. Actually, what had happened with Psalm 118 is, that, is God's people had begun to proclaim it to one another. Hey, blessing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what happens here in the text is the true reality of what it was meant to be is explained in that it was meant to be proclaimed to he, the king, who came in the name of the Lord. And Jesus is just that. You see, the second part draws us back to the birth of Jesus. When the angels proclaimed both peace and glory. In Luke chapter 2, it says this. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those whom He has pleased. They're celebrating the reality of Christ coming. What they're saying is, hey, on earth, peace has come. The Prince of Peace is here and now. Worship Him. He's not in the, 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 the palace though, right? Like he's in, he's in the manger in a stable. But here in this moment, the people begin to cry out. And I don't, like, I just, as I read it, picked up on the reality. They say, no, peace in heaven. Because guess what? Jesus has come to make peace in heaven. To, to bring our peace with God. He is the, the Prince of Peace that has come on earth. But guess what? He went to the cross so that He might make peace between us and God. Therefore, blessed is the King who has come to make peace. You see, what I find even, even more astonishing is what happens after that. Because the interaction... To this act of worship and celebration creates this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees who are watching as Jesus makes his way along. You see, in the midst of the celebration, they tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples because to them, he is not worthy of the celebration they're giving him. What they're saying is, Jesus, you better get them to be quiet because one or two things are, one, they're probably, they're blaspheming. You don't deserve what they're saying, but also, man, if, maybe if y'all don't stop, hey, the Romans might hear you. You see, in life, there will always be the temptation to temper, stop, or revert our worship away from Jesus and towards other things. And it doesn't take very long, does it? Right? Like for you today, like you, you, I pray and hope that you have this moment where, man, you are refreshed, maybe drawn to repentance, deeper faith, encouraged by the Word of God through the celebratory, through celebrating through song and communion. And man, you're going to leave here like that. And guess what? The temptation, not too long after that, because maybe you saw someone parked forward and not backwards in the parking lot. Or maybe you see, you know, somebody doesn't stop at the stoplight or they get your food late or something else happens and guess what you're gonna have you're gonna want to temper or stop that for the sake of whatever it is in front of you like we do that right but look at what jesus says and i mean i think that like while this is a really like uh, uh, this is like as you think on this you're like oh my gosh like what if rock started crying out but i think the bigger picture is they should not because we are Look at Jesus' response to their calls for temperance. He says, look, if they go silent, the very stones here will cry out. What Jesus is saying here is that the religious leaders are too blind to understand the reality of the true king coming in. And since they don't understand it, they can't see that this is the moment that all of creation has been looking towards since the fall. So it's it's as if creation is just rumbling, just ready for this to happen. 
Because I know what's coming. You see, when God would send the one who would crush the head of sin, death, and Satan. And so even if the disciples were to be silenced, all of creation would testify to the reality of the humble king entering in to bring salvation by way of giving up himself. You see, I believe that this text is also a call for us to not be silenced and allow creation to proclaim that which we have been commanded to proclaim. In Matthew 28, Jesus didn't say all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, let the rocks go make disciples. No, he said, you go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them what all that I've commanded. It's our job. It's what we've been commissioned for. May we stop sitting back. Do not advocate your call to proclaim through celebratory proclamation. But also, don't advocate your call to proclaim even in in, in the heartaches, right? Like we just sang about it. And so Jesus is a different kind of king. That brings about a different kind of celebration. But what I want to do in closing out is I want to look at how Jesus is a model for how we are to respond towards the city we find ourselves in light of the gospel. Let's read 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem. Hear this. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. He's the peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay, so Jesus, as Jesus drew near to the city. In the midst of all that worship, all that celebration, it says he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps over it because of its blindness to the events that are transpiring before it. What Jesus is saying in that moment, he's saying, look, the day of visitation is like I'm here and yet you're blind to it. And guess what? One day because of that, it's going to bring destruction. You see, this should have been a day of celebration for all who knew the prophecies of old, but instead was a day of division and distraction due to the deep spiritual blindness that would ultimately bring future judgment and destruction to the city. You see, I also believe that in this text we see Jesus model three ways that we are to care about about our city, be it Brenham, Burton, Belleville, or to the ends of the earth. You see, we are to have a heart for our city because we proclaim Jesus both as Savior and King. You see, this is why Jesus' entrance is so triumphant. And so let's look quickly at the three ways Jesus models for us the need to have hearts for our city. That we would weep over the brokenness that we see in our city. That we would not sit back and insulate ourselves from the brokenness around us because it's there. Even though I believe at times in our context, in our culture, where we live, specifically here in Brenham, Texas, at times, it tries to hide it and cover it up. But guess what? If you have eyes, you should be able to see it. And we're not to sit back and say, oh, well, hopefully get it together. 
Now, as the church, we are called into it. We are called to be a people for the city. And so the first thing we see is that Jesus calls us to have compassion for the brokenness of our city. That we are to weep. We are to have a deep, deep emotion towards our city. You see, when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, the other thing that he does, and I think this is so beautiful, is that he weeps over all those in Jerusalem, not just those who follow him. Do we do that? I think it's easy for us to maybe weep over the brokenness and the loss and the heartache that we see in this room. But man, I think at times we can tend to be a little cold to those outside these walls. Say, well, they got what they deserved. Man, what a poor picture of the gospel. Because did you get what you deserved? No. You see, Jesus fully knows what's about to happen to him. And yet his heart is broken for the lost in Jerusalem. Our lives should be marked by pleas of compassion for the lost in Brenham, not just those that agree with us. For Jesus had compassion on each of us when we were yet enemies of God. J.C. Ryle, who's a theologian that I love to read because, man, he, J.C. just, he just kind of tells it the way it is. Like, uh, he's one of those guys, like, we, we talk about in the office all the time, like, man, in eternity, like, who are the people you want to talk to? And I told Jeremy this week, I was like, man, I want to just sit down with this guy and be, and just talk with him. And so he wrote a sermon regarding Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And I'm going to use a couple of quotes as we close out our time. But J.C. Ryle says this regarding the weeping of Jesus over all in his sermon. He said, we err greatly if we suppose that Christ cares for none but his own believing people. He cares for all. His heart is wide enough to take an interest in all mankind. His compassion extends to every man, woman, and child on earth. Hardened sinners are fond of making excuses for their conduct, but they will never be able to say that Christ was not merciful and was not ready to save. And so we see that Jesus has a heart of compassion for the brokenness of the city. Next, we see Jesus model through his weeping prayer a concern for the peace or shalom of the city, the holistic peace of the city. You see, while everybody else is wanting Jesus to just bring uh, a governmental peace, military peace, Jesus is saying, no, I weep because, man, if you knew the peace that would come, if you knew what peace really was, if you knew me, then you would see things so differently. You see, we as the church are to be a people who pray for the peace of God to rule and reign here in our city. I believe what that means is that we pray with dependence, dependent need, knowing that Jesus is the only king that can bring peace. And so I don't know about you, but like as I look around, I shared, man, there we can see areas of brokenness, right? Where there is no peace. And man, at times that can be daunting to want to step into, which is why I say that we need dependent prayer. But man, it just seems like it just continually comes at us. I don't know about if you know yet or not, but I woke up this morning and as I got to the office and was making coffee, I got on Facebook and man, what do I see? But a shooting at the VFW a block away from here. Right? Four people shot at a 16-year-old's birthday party. And I look at it and I'm like, that's, that's deep brokenness. Like, what, what are we doing? 
And like, what are we to do to step into that? Man, all I know how to do and all I know that we can do right now in this moment is that we can just pray. And as we pray, we also, man, we can proclaim better news. There is a better way. And so at the end of our time, we're going to spend some time praying for that. See, we are to be people as we see the brokenness that we step in in prayer and pray for the peace. Because guess what? We know the king that brings peace. And then lastly, we see that Jesus models for us an understanding of the need for salvation in light of sin and Christ's return. As he prays over Jerusalem, he says, look, one day, guess what? Because you're so blind, guess what? Judgment is coming. And it came in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. Uh, but also, man, guess what? We know ultimately it's coming at Christ's return. Guess what? The one who came in on a humble donkey is coming back on a war horse. And as the church, one of the reasons we should be so engaged in sharing the gospel to those around us is due to our understanding that now is the time for salvation and one day it'll be too late. For Christ will return one day and there, while every knee will bow and every tongue confess Him as Lord, there will be no time to cry out for Him as Savior. Today is the day. Our job is to proclaim that hope. We leave the results up to God. Because again, He's the only King that can bring peace. I can't bring peace to you. You can't bring peace to one another. Your spouse can't bring ultimate peace to you. Your kids can't bring ultimate peace to you. Amen? Like, you can't. Only Jesus can. And so we proclaim the gospel. And then guess what we do next? Like, we pray and proclaim the gospel. We pray and proclaim the gospel. In word and in deed. And we leave the results up to God. Man, my hope is that, that we would be that kind of people. I, uh, I had something happen this week. Um, that I probably haven't fully known how to process. But over the last month, I got to proclaim the gospel to a guy over and over and over again. And that's all I could do. He sought counsel and I proclaimed and I proclaimed. And on Friday, he, he OD'd and died. And I, I looked at Haley and I, I, I called my, what I call my three Jeremy's. I have Jeremy Bell, a guy named Jeremy Buck that's a pastor and my, my counseling mentor, Jeremy McCallum. And I said, guys, like, I don't, I didn't do anything wrong. Because I just proclaim the gospel, I proclaim it. But even in the midst, like my heart is so broken because I don't believe. Like it wasn't the result I wanted. It wasn't even the result. Like I met with them the day before. But I think for me, like as I think on that, as I process that, like it just struck me as the reality of man. Like man, don't wait to proclaim the good news. Like just proclaim it. Heaven and say, look, ultimately, like I can give you all these best practices, but like, guess what? Like you ultimately need to know Jesus today. Only through him will you find peace. I believe that Ryle in the same sermon on Jesus weeping says it best regarding this concern we're to take towards the lost. He says, we know but little of true Christianity. 
If we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing of whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. For if Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. Do we? Or are we so jumbled up in the things that, that we're worshiping and celebrating and looking after and the agendas that we've set that we're blind to even the brokenness in front of us? May we be known as a people who not simply have pity upon others, but have deep concern for their lostness in ways that lead us to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. And so to that end, regardless of their response, we can say that we proclaim to them the hope that is found in King Jesus. And so my prayer and hope for us is that, 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 that Jesus' triumphal entry would do th- three things in our lives. That it would draw us to humility as Jesus is humble. And it would be a humility to say, Jesus, I humbly submit my life to you as Savior and King and Lord. Corey Tinboom was asked, hey, uh, if you don't know her story, go read about her. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place about her time in, in, uh, uh, in uh, concentration camps in World War II for hiding Jews in her home. And she said, they, somebody asked her, said, Corey, like you've done all this in your life. Like, how do you stay humble? And she said, well, um, I just think about the donkey that Jesus rode in on. She said, do you, do you think that that donkey has all these joys and shouts of praise are going up? You think that donkey said, huh, I wonder if any of these are for me. No. The donkey was just the means to, to take the king in. And she said, when I think about that, I, I asked the Lord, say, Lord, let me be so humble that I'm willing to just say, God, let me just bring you in. So may it draw us to humility. May we humble ourselves as we see the humility of Jesus in this story. Secondly, that we would worship. I was at a birthday party last night and we were, there was music on and I heard some people singing. And I told them, I said, I expect the same ferocity and volume of worship on Sunday morning as you have for George Strait right now. And they said, well, Kyle, it doesn't matter. You're going to be singing loud enough. And I said, yeah, I don't care. (laughs) May we worship in ways that confound the world around us. Always proclaiming Jesus to be the blessed king that brings peace. And may no one or no thing be able to shut us up. And then lastly, may we grow in compassion, care, and concern for the lost in our city and in our midst. And may it lead us to go and proclaim the good news to them. That's what I want to invite you to. And so I'm going to have the team come forward. And this is what I want us to do. I, I want us to, to group up and uh, I'm going to pray. And then I want you to group up in groups of uh, maybe three or four. And I just want you to take a moment to pray for. We don't know all the details, but I want you to pray for the broken reality of the shooting that happened at the VFW this morning. That at a 16 year old's birthday party, such a fight would break out that I believe five to seven shots and four people were injured. But that we would stand in the gap for that and say, God, uh, man, use us how you will so that we might proclaim better news. But even in the midst of this, all we know that we can pray uh, for you uh, 
to reveal yourself, to bring healing and comfort, but also give us an avenue to go in and proclaim the gospel. And then after a couple of minutes, uh, I'm going to invite Josh Strong is going to come forward and Josh is going to help me uh, with the passing out of communion. And, and we're just going to share. And what we're going to do is we're going to remember the humility of Jesus. We're going to remember the call to worship. I believe this is a symbolic act of worship and remembering him. But also in doing this and doing this, we we say, Lord, because you gave your body and poured out your blood, what we are then called to do is may we have the same concern, compassion and care for those in our city as you did for us. Because guess what? He has the same care, compassion, and concern for our city that He does for us. So may that just light a fire of just evangelism and service that we may proclaim this good news to the broken places. So Father, I thank You. The blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord that brought peace not only on earth but also in heaven. That humbly submitted himself, even as we see in, in, in Paul's letter, that he emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The God that he, as we're going to see next week, is victorious. He's risen and reigning with all authority. Got to pray that this would draw us to lives of worship. But also that, that we would not sit back and allow the stones to cry out, but that as we cry out in worship, we would also uh, cry out and, and, and submit and, and, and go as a people that are called to go and proclaim the good news. Well, we ask that by your spirit, we would be empowered to do that, not in our strength. So I see you move now in Jesus name. Amen.